Well, it's February 4th. If you have participated in any type of resolution about embarking on reading through all of scriptures cover to cover, I encourage you, continue on. I would guess that you're somewhere at the end of Genesis or beginning the book of Exodus. And the reason I encourage you to be strong is because Exodus chapter 25 is coming. And if you're full of courage and grit, you'll make it through Exodus 25 all the way to Exodus 40. And then if you're a common man or woman or child, you are going to experience the proverbial wall, a speed bump, a sandbar, a barricade that ends most reading plans, where most reading plans go to die, the book of Leviticus. And I'll ask you what I asked the staff this week at our meeting. If you were to describe the book of Leviticus with one adjective, what would it be? Boring, repetitive, confusing, tedious, or would you even dare say irrelevant? After just a few conversations with people about asking about the book of Leviticus, it has become very clear to me that if you have read through the book of Leviticus, there's only a few reasons why. One, you had to, to finish your re yearly reading. Two, somebody made you finish your yearly reading. Or three, your pride just couldn't let you go because you had to read the entire book cover to cover. But my guess, what I would expect, and from what I've found out this week, is most people have not looked or read through the book of Leviticus. Because if you have, you probably found yourself somewhat lost. You might have been asking yourself, what in the world does this have to do with me? And not only that, what does this have to do with anything? And so the question remains, why? Why are we here? Why are we in the book of Leviticus? Why? Why couldn't you have preached from Romans, or from Revelation, or from Matthew's Gospel, or one of the historical books? Why this book? Well, if you were here this past fall, I preached through the book of Ephesians. If you remember what I said about Ephesians, is that it is a small book that might surprise you. Of course, Presbyterians, we love Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2. God's great revelation of His eternal plan of his redemption of his people through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But we continued on, and what we saw in Ephesians is that chapters 1 through 3 gave us this great truth of who God is and what he has done. And the last three chapters of Ephesians lead us to what God has revealed for his people to do. To rest in the perfect work of Christ to understand and believe the truth of what he has done for us. But Ephesians also reveals what God has called us to. To live in the presence of our God. To walk before him. So often, 
Christians, we believe that the, the truth of the gospel is I'm a sinner saved by grace, but then we get stuck. And we don't remember the great vision that the Bible gives for God's people that we have been rescued from something and we've also been rescued to something. Do you not remember this in Ephesians? You have been, been, been predestined in order to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You have been redeemed to be imitators of God as beloved children. You have obtained an inheritance to walk in love for one another. You have been forgiven so that we might submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We have been sealed with the promise of the Spirit so that we might put on Christ. So what does this have to do with Leviticus? Everything. Because everything Paul teaches the church in Ephesians is what God teaches his people in Leviticus. And this is where I'll step in and I'll give you my one word, my adjective that best describes the book of Leviticus. Misunderstood. Misunderstood because we don't understand what's happening. Misunderstood because we don't know what it means. Misunderstood because we can't appreciate what we see. And what I hope to do this morning and over the next 14 weeks is to reorient us, to introduce to us this treasure trove of God's redeeming love through grace. That is what we find in the book of Leviticus. God's redeeming love bound in grace. And what I want to see this morning is Leviticus's placement, Leviticus's message, and Leviticus's vision. So Leviticus's placement. Leviticus is wedged in the middle of the Torah. God's law. The first five books of the Bible were written by Moses and often called the Pentateuch. And within the Pentateuch, we find God's unfolding story of his great work of redemption. In the Pentateuch, we see the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of God's love for us through his great acts of grace. We find God dealing with his people, redeeming his people who are lost and marred by sin, who are filled with selfishness, who have become overcome with despair, who don't know which way to turn in the midst of their troubles. Does that sound familiar to you? You see, because the Pentateuch teaches us who God is. It shows us who, what he is like by revealing what God has done. Genesis is the first book, but we should actually look at Genesis as the first chapter. The first chapter of this great story, setting the tone for everything that follows. Genesis presents us a story that contrasts the world as we know it. For the Israelites, it contrasts a world of polytheism. Now Genesis contrasts the world that is overcome by atheism. Genesis 
gives us this picture of this world overcome by power and greed and sets next to it a world created by the one true God who rules over it sovereignly through his love and his grace, and he made it good. Genesis lists the veil, revealing how God created this world, God's great intent for this, re, the, for this world. And it reveals that those who have experienced frustration and corruption and separation and shame and all the experience that we experience are abnormal and out of place in the world that God first created. We also find his promises. His promises that he made for his people. His covenant promises binding himself by grace. He makes promises that are for his people and their descendants to come after them. The Pentateuch reveals how he graciously initiates his relationship through grace. Adam didn't deserve God's favor. He was placed in favor. Abraham didn't receive what was due to him. He received grace. Moses and Israel didn't deserve his unmerited favor. If God wanted to show his great name, it would have been just as easy for him to choose the Egyptians. You know what would have looked really great on top of the pyramids? Yahweh saves. No, God revealed his grace to a rebel. God, God poured out his mercy on a wanderer in the desert. God revealed his great love to a slave people that could do nothing for themselves. The God of the Pentateuch is one who redeems those who are hopeless and helpless. The God of the Pentateuch reveals to us what God does and who he is. He's the covenant king of the entire creation. This is the central story of the Pentateuch. God revealing himself through covenant and redemption. But what we find is that we typically end this story at Exodus 24. Because Exodus 24 is where God gives his covenant and gives his law upon Mount Sinai. And we typically don't read any farther than that. Their redemption, their covenant, the law was given to them for a purpose. To lead them into being God's people. That they might serve him. That they might worship him. Students, you might remember this. For those that, you were, that were here, a few years ago I, I actually went through the book of Exodus do you remember what, what Moses said to Pharaoh over and over again? Right, we, we all remember the first part. Let my people go. Who can finish that sentence? Well, we see it in Exodus 5, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go that they might serve me. That they might hold fast to me. You see, the story of God's great 
redemption, of leading his people out of Egypt and into the desert, that isn't the climax of the story. The climax, the crescendo, is Exodus 25 through 40. It isn't an epilogue. It's the story that we see at the end of Exodus where God has done everything in his power to bring his people to himself that he might dwell in their midst. That's the crescendo. That's the climax of the story. Once again, as it was in Eden, God is in the midst of his people and his face is shining upon them because they are his people and he is their God. This is the goal of redemption. Redemption is only half the story. And we see that at the end, in this crescendo, in Exodus 40, verse 33, we read, So Moses finished his work. And this should immediately make us jump back to Genesis chapter 2, where God finished his creative work. God had placed man and woman in the garden and blessed them. And how did he bless them? Simply by being in their presence. He didn't have to add anything. He was the blessing. This is where Leviticus is. This is where it's situated. The people once again basking and delighting that God has prepared a way for them to be in their midst. What we find at the end of Exodus in the beginning of Leviticus is the world made right again. God in the midst of his people. They have prepared and built the tabernacle. And what we see in Exodus 40 is the glory of the Lord descending, descending and filling the tabernacle. God recreated Eden. Just as God separated in Genesis 1, God has now separated his people from the rest of the world, drawn them to himself, and then he gives us a glimpse of Eden, and he tabernacled with his people. This is where God desires to be. They cannot properly repair what has been lost, but he can properly repair what they destroyed. He wants nothing more than to be in the presence of his people. He wants nothing more than to be in the midst of his people. He longs to be with us. N.T. Wright says, it was as if God could not have waited any longer to be where he always wanted to be. This is where we find the book of Leviticus. This is where it is situated, right here in the chronology of the Pentateuch. Between Exodus 25 and Exodus 9, Leviticus is wedged right in the middle of this. In the beginning of Leviticus 1, God summons Moses as a king summons his servant and says, Come to me, where all things will be made right. As my seminary professor and Levitical scholar Jay Sklar says, the book of Leviticus reveals God's purposes for his people. It is a return to his purpose for the, 
for humanity in creation. Where Leviticus is, is exactly where God wanted his people to be. In his presence. And it should cause for us, throughout the book of Leviticus, a longing for the presence of Jesus. Do you remember what John writes in his gospel? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He settled. He took residence among us. Jesus tabernacled with his people. Christ Presbyterian Church, don't you see our God delights in you? In being with you. He ordered all of history. He ordained whatsoever comes to pass. He called you, set you apart in order that he can dwell with you. Our God delights nothing more than you. God revealed in the Pentateuch that he will do anything to be with his people. And this is what we find in Jesus Christ. God would not be separated from us. He desires to be with us. So this is where Leviticus is. We find them in New Eden. Now let's see what, the, what Leviticus' message is. Leviticus reveals something quite different than what we find in Eden. The book where we find the people in Exodus is quite far off from where we found Adam in Genesis 1 and 2. Unlike the Edenic garden where man would dwell in the presence of God, as he was created to do, we now find men overcome by sin. Everything has changed. We find man lost, expelled from the garden because he desired the creation more than the creator. He desired to be his own king rather than to submitting to the one true king of the universe. And this was not something that God could just overlook. This was not something that God should just set aside. But God had to banish them. God had to expel him. I don't know if you've ever been expelled from school or you ever received in-school suspension or detention. But if you have, you've experienced something of what this is like. What expulsion, why expulsion happens is because bad behavior means you must be set apart from the way you normally live your life. You've been taken out. You've been removed from where you would love to be because of your disobedience. You see that this is exactly what happened to Adam. They were excommunicated. Adam's sin, as we will see in the book of Leviticus, would have been considered a high-handed sin. This doesn't mean that he just fell down a set of stairs. This means what he did was blasphemous. What he did 
was defiant. He sinned intentionally. He committed treason and rejected his covenant king. And so God excommunicated him. He was cut off from the land of life where God was. Leviticus describes this being cut off as a living death, severed from the life source. And God had to do it. He had to cut them off because of his great holiness. His complete otherness, his transcendent moral perfection, he could no longer be in the presence of sinful man or his presence would have utterly destroyed them. In Exodus 24, we read that the appearance of God is like a devouring devouring fire. We see when Moses sees the backside of God in Exodus 30. His face so radiates the glory that when he comes down from the mountain, the people are terrified. Jerry Bridges says that God's holiness means that he is separated. He is infinitely exalted. He is holy other. R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, if you haven't read it, you, you need to read it. But there he says, holiness doesn't just describe an attribute of God. It describes God as who he is. God is holy. And something that we often miss is that in Scripture, the writers can't use exclamation points. But to use, to exclamate, to pronounce something very good that they are trying to say, what they do is they actually repeat words. And we see this when we see the character of God, when he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We see this when Jesus spoke to his disciples and said, truly, truly, he's saying, listen to this. But there is no other place in Scripture where we have a word used three times other than when people are speaking of Yahweh and call him holy, holy, holy. This is the vision that we see in Isaiah 6 when he gets a glimpse of Yahweh sitting on his throne. And the seraphim have to cover their faces. They have to cover their feet. Non-sinful beings still aren't able to enter into the presence of a holy God. John Calvin says, Hence the dread and amazement of which holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God. Men are never duly touched and impressed with the conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Sinful man cannot stand before God or they will be utterly destroyed. God's holiness touches everything wherever he goes. God expelled Adam out of the garden for his own good. He expelled Adam because he was a trespasser. He no longer belonged. 
he was now dead. But what I want us to see, what I want us to have great hope for, is that this is the problem that Leviticus solves. The message of Leviticus gives us a solution to our sin. God makes a way for his people by grace. Their sin must be dealt with. That's what Leviticus is all about. The message of Leviticus is God's forgiveness, his providing for the needy, his protecting his people from harm, even if that means it's protecting them from his holiness. He has compassion on them, and yet he remains just. He offers to atone for their sin. Yes, we see a book full of laws and regulations, but these are not to make their lives hard. These laws and these regulations don't hold them back from having fun. These laws and the regulations lead them to life because it leads them into the presence of God. We're going to see a lot of rituals and a lot of sacrifices that don't make any sense to us. But what we do need to know is that sin must be dealt with. Sin is costly. Sin is real, and it affects, it affects everything about us. But unfortunately, what happens to us is that we don't see our sin as God sees our sin. We try to give reasons for our sin. We try to downplay it. We try to act as though it's not going to hurt anybody. It's really not that important. But what Leviticus reveals is that there is only one way into the presence of God, and it's through the shedding of blood. A life must be given. For an unholy person to enter the presence of God, their sin must be atoned for. His justice must be appeased. And Leviticus provides this means. It provides blood to make atonement for sin. Through these sacrifices, the only thing that gives them the ability to be cleansed from their sin and impurity is the blood of a living creature. But notice, Israel was to bring these sacrifices but God is very clear that it is he who grants them to bring them. He grants them the grace as a means of atoning for their sin. Yet again, in the book of Leviticus, we will see that God provides a way for sinners to come into his presence through grace. God boldly declares in the book of Leviticus, salvation comes only when God takes the initiative, only when he grants a way through grace. But what Leviticus provides, we can only give praise and honor to our Lord for how much more he provides in Christ. As we read, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a vile person of the ashes of heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ? How much more do we find the grace of Christ, the great high priest who stood in the presence of God for our behalf, 
how much more do we find Christ, a priest who is unlike us, who doesn't need to make a sacrifice for himself, but goes into the holiness of God because he is holy and presents himself for our sin. How much more do we find Jesus ransoming sinners, dead, cast out, and reconciles us and brings us into the presence of our holy Father? You see, all the sacrifices... All the cleansing, everything that we see in Leviticus prepares us for the message of Jesus. But it's much, much, it's much, much more than just a return to Eden. It's a far better Eden where we are fine, found united to Christ himself, the true and second Adam. How much more? do we find our need for Jesus and his atonement for our sin? So that's Leviticus' placement. That's its message. And lastly, we have Leviticus' vision. Leviticus has a vision for us. It isn't just a story about our redemption. It's a story to, about what we have been called to. We have been called to be holy as the Lord is holy. That's what this passage says. I brought you up out of Egypt. I redeemed you. Therefore, be holy as I am holy. Holiness is only gained by being in the presence of our holy God. He is holy by definition. We can't make ourselves holy. We can't make anything holy. It is only God in his presence that anything is made holy. Leviticus not only provides a way for sinful people to enter his presence, it provides and prepares a people to be holy. Their holiness depends on their connection, on their relationship, on their communion with God. being in his presence, having his face once again shine upon them, actually gives them new life. And now, as, their peop as this people is in the midst of their God, only then can they actually fulfill what they've been called to do, to be a blessing to the nations. They were wanderers. They were dead, cut off. Outside of the garden, they could not fulfill their purpose. And what we find in Leviticus is that our king has called us home. And our king has called us to reflect his holiness in the world. Eden was just an outpost. It was a conduit through which God was going to bless his world. We are called to be holy we are called to mediate the presence of our loving King and drawing the world to Jesus. We are called to be set apart, marked by our baptisms, set aside for a holy use, called to be separate from the world, but not separated from the world. He has made us holy so that we can be lights unto the nation. 
As Peter says, we are a chosen rest, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. God's people are a holy nation, and we've been called to holiness. To represent our king, his justice, his mercy, his kindness, his righteousness, his holiness, and his love. And what's so incredible is that he's provided all the means for us to do that. And his name is Jesus. Leviticus is a book that points us and prepares us for Jesus. This is why not only in Leviticus 11 do we see this call to be holy, we see it in Leviticus 19 and 20 and 21. We are to be a God, we are to be a people set apart by God to reflect our king. And if we're not, we're not truly living. This is why we've been given life. To be a blessing to the nations and to bask in the glory of our God. Over 90% of Leviticus is direct speech from God to his people, directing them, leading them into his presence, bringing them back to life. It's almost as if they were preparing for resurrection life. But 100% of Leviticus is a story of sinners saved by the grace of God who look to Jesus by faith. Amen. Let us pray.